Scripture reading is from the book of Ephesians, which can be found on page 1159 of your pew Bibles. And it's chapters, uh, so Ephesians chapter 5, verses 21 through to 33 on page 1159. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church, without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In this same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated his own body, but he feeds and cares for it, just as Christ does the church, for we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I am talking about Christ and the church. However, each one of you also must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. This is the word of the Lord. Shall we pray? Heavenly Father, we're grateful for your life-giving word, which is eminently practical. And as we consider marriage, again, as it's framed by Jesus Christ, we pray that your Holy Spirit would speak powerfully. Do business with us today, God. We pray it in the name of Jesus. Amen. So at Knox, we're finishing a series of messages on Ephesians. I promise you we're going to be done with this by the end of uh, February. And right now, we're in uh, two weeks of looking at marriage. We're in week two of Ephesians as it deals specifically with marriage. We're going to look next week about parenting, parent-child relationships, week after work, economic relationships. But we're looking now at marriage, and all of these different societal relationships are connected, are applications of what Paul is saying in verses 18 through 21, where he talks about be filled with the Spirit. This is all about being filled with the Spirit, and that really operative sentence of submit to one another reverence for Christ. We dealt with that all last week. If you missed last week, I hope that you can check it out online or some other places, because we're not going to deal with it today, important as it is. And as I said last week, I do want to say this again too, because um, even though we're we're dealing with marriage, um, if you're single, it doesn't mean you check out because there's stuff for us here. Because if maybe you anticipate being married someday in your life, or you know people who are married, um, or maybe you've been married, but now you find yourself single again, uh, this is going to be helpful for all of us. It's going to be helpful for us to help other people who are in marriages as well, or if we're anticipating and looking forward to marriage. But it's really important as we consider marriage to also think about our wider culture which shapes us and to ask Probably one of the biggest questions that people in our culture have about marriage, and it is this. 
why bother with marriage at all? Really, why bother with marriage at all? Isn't it just an oppressive institution that unnecessarily subjugates women, that stifles personal fulfillment? Isn't it, isn't it just a remnant of some long-ago patriarchal society? Shouldn't we dispense with marriage altogether as this long-term committed relationship? So many people are asking those questions. We live in a day and age when marriage is widely dismissed and discouraged. Marriage was once pretty much the expectation for couples, right? But people today of all ages um, are foregoing marriage and instead opting for cohabitation, living together. And the argument, there's many of them, would be that, you know, living together before marriage improves your chances of making a good marriage. You've got to test out one another, checking to see if there's good chemistry. And, and there's some, some ways you can understand that, especially for people who have experienced the bitterness of divorce somewhere in their life, whether personally or whether in their parents or somewhere in their family. Um, or people argue, uh, we're going to wait with marriage because, you know what, we just need to get financially secure in our life. And so we're going to postpone marriage until that's there. After all, some people say, Isn't, marriage is just a piece of paper, right? I don't need a piece of paper to justify my love for this other person. And while understandable, the problem with those convictions is that they're not based in evidence. Um, people really do need to do some of the, the good work of exploring those convictions. And I could marshal a whole bunch of studies that would show uh, evidence-based studies that would counter all those arguments, but I'm not going to do that. That's for another day. If you wanted those studies, I can refer them to you. But I do want to continue, as I did last week, to continue to present a Christian understanding of marriage, which is a unique perspective on what marriage is, its purpose, its promise. I want to show some of the biblical wisdom uh, of marriage. And, and part of that, I want to get into that by, by connecting perhaps some of you who may not believe in marriage. Um, and I want to do it through a biblical lens of social justice, which actually impacts marriage. Here's the thing. If you care about the poor in this world, if you care for the well-being of lower-income persons, if you want to see domestic abuse against women decrease, if you would like to see blue-collar men and women find and keep meaningful employments in their lives, if you would like to see children born into stable homes, if you long for neighborhoods and communities where crime decreases, then you should want and you should vigorously defend long-term committed marriages to flourish. Because marriage is actually a social justice issue. Dr. Bradford Wilcox, University of Virginia, he's one of many scholars who are, who are doing social, longitudinal social science um, explorations, looking at the social realities of the breakdown of marriage. And he is, observes this, quote, he says... Fix my wiring. <laughs> Bradford Wilcox. I think this mic is okay. This really echoes. We're good? We're good. Yeah. 
Yes. Bradford Wilcox, University of Virginia, says this. He said, I would say that marriage is a social justice issue, both if you're concerned about the welfare of kids, but also if you're concerned about forging a more equal, more humane, more just society. Because while, when families break down and stratify the way they do in North America, that is a recipe for unjust economic inequality, but also social inequality. And that is profoundly unfair and unjust. Now, why is that? What's the connection between marriage, this institution of marriage, and this, this welfare, this broader social welfare? Well, one Nobel-winning economic uh, economist, George Akerlof, has explained the unique connection of marriage to the general flourishing of society. And he observes this. He says, married men are more attached to the labor force. They have less substance abuse. They commit less crime. They are likely to become, less likely to become the victims of crime. They have better health and are less accident prone. And he found in his studies that cohabitation was incapable of providing those same benefits. Married men, he says, settle down and work more, earn more, spend more, spend more on their families instead of themselves. Mar married men are dramatically less likely to abuse their wives and children than men of any other relational status. And he says marriage boosts the well-being of women in nearly every important measure of well-being. Now, this is a Nobel Prize winning economist saying this stuff. It's a social justice issue. So even, even if you think, Bible, I don't care about the Bible, you should be concerned that the body of social science evidence is pointing to this important reality, which is really fascinating because we live in a culture where the conventional wisdom glamorizes early and unmarried sexual activity and where conventional wisdom promotes diverse family forms. But those convictions actually are destructive to social justice for the poorly educated, for lower income persons. It's impossible to, to ignore the growing body of evidence. Marriage just drives well-being, stability, conditions of wider social justice, and the absence of marriage drives it down. And what we're seeing in all the social science is, is really an echo of the wisdom that Scripture has provided. This growing body of evidence is demonstrating what Scripture has revealed, that marriage, long-term, stable, committed marital relationships between men and women are part of the goodness of creation. They're part of the wider flourishing of the world, of how human reality is wired to function well so that all flourish. So marriage is a social justice issue because it's woven into the goodness of creation. And any time that shalom of creation is disrupted, injustice follows. And creation is the very place where Paul turns his argument. He's been talking about marriage and how it's reframed around Jesus Christ, around the sacrificial service of Jesus. And then Paul goes back to the beginning, to Genesis chapter 2. And in doing so, what he's doing is he simply mimicking what Jesus does whenever Jesus talked about marriage. When Jesus would talk about marriage, he would go back to Genesis. Luke, uh, I mean, Matthew chapter 19, someone was questioning Jesus about divorce. And, and he turns to Genesis 2, and Paul is doing the same thing. And Genesis 2 provides us with this 
really important pre-fall description of God's design for how men and women relate in human marriage. God, in that passage, is instituting marriage as part of the created goodness of this world we live in. And Paul is aligning himself now with the teaching and trajectory of Jesus here by doing this. Now, in Genesis 2, we see God creating Adam and Eve. We find the image of God in the loving distinction of male and female persons. God created them male and female. And this distinction is meant for communion. God created them to be together, together to mirror the unity and community of the Trinity. And this is true of us in our relationships. No matter what age or what stage we are, young or old, married or single, we find our identity, we find ourselves in community, in in relationship with others. And so then God brings Adam and Eve together. And it's one of these beautiful passages. God is, is presiding over the first marriage. And when Adam sees Eve, it's, if, if there was a soundtrack to it, it would be Etta James singing at last. That's what it would be. Because you know what Adam does when he sees Eve? He breaks out into a song. It's a poem in our scripture, but he can't help himself. That is almost the human instinct. When we experience this love, we got to break out into song and we start get waxing eloquently about love. Adam says, this is now bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. If there was iTunes, Adam would have dropped the first romantic single ever. So no wonder we continue to have so many romantic love songs because they express this profound drive and desire in our hearts. And what's remarkable about how many of our contemporary love songs is how many of them sing out this desire for a lasting love. Not for a quick one-night deal. I mean, you get some of that Dismiss those. But so many of them just speak of, sing of, this deep desire for a lasting love, a love that will endure forever. Despite all the cultural dismissals of marriage as a lifelong relationship, it's something we want deep in our hearts. It's this irrepressible instinct to recognize, that recognizes the goodness of what God has placed us in, in this creation. So God brings Adam and Eve together. And immediately after this, we read... This is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. Genesis 2 presents marriage as a covenant relationship. That's how it's set up, and that's how it's used, actually, by God, among other things, to illustrate his covenant relationship with us. Marriage is one of those things that is an icon, an image to us so that we can experientially understand God's faithful covenant love for us. The marriage of man and a woman is that picture. Now, in saying that a marriage, a man and a woman are joined together, the Bible uses a unique word that when it says to be united, um, some translations have it to cleave. I love that, to cleave together. Um, it's a word that means to, to adhere there's a sticky factor to it. To be united to someone is, is to 
to, to become one with that person through a covenant, through offering a promise, an oath. It is a covenant, a relationship established between two people, and it is done before God. When I do a marriage, when I officiate at a wedding, um, I always tell the couples as we plan the service, the only thing you need to do is show up and make vows. That is it. Everything else is extra. The singing, the pomp and ceremony, the expensive dress, the tuxedos, whatever unity candle you might have, all of that's extra. You don't need it. You just got to show up and exchange vows. That is it. It's not stomping on a glass that makes a marriage. It's not exchanging a ring that makes a marriage. What makes you married? The vows. The permanent, exclusive, public, legally binding commitment to share all of your life with another person. It's a covenant relationship made by vows before God. And it is before God. That's why in in a ceremony, you'll often hear questions asked before a couple makes a vow to one another. In a marriage ceremony, I often ask this. uh, I'll talk about God's plan for marriage, and then I'll say something like, now that you've heard God's promise and plan concerning marriage, do you affirm your desire to enter into this covenant, and do you commit yourselves to each other in accordance with it? And each husband and wife fiance, they'll say, I do, or I will. And they're not saying it to each other. They're, they're saying it to me. They're answering my question. And, and in a sense, what they're doing is they're, they're answering God in this moment because they understand that the vow is made before God. So before they exchange vows to one another, they exchange a vow with God about this relationship that they are entering into. The heart, the core of a marriage is this covenant relationship that is made by vows before God. And of course, a couple does exchange vows. Let's let's walk through vows that couples often make. Traditional vows you've probably heard many times. I take you. Marriage is this exclusive relationship. I have multiple choices. There are many people I could have married I choose you, which is a reflection of God's choice of us. God says to us this free, exclusive choice, I choose you. I take you to be my wife, to be my husband. It's a relational covenant that part of the vow indicates. And this is so unique because we are schooled in our culture in in relationships that are commodified. Consumer relationships, contract relationships. We know these consumer relationships. We live with them every day. And we need them. They're good. I'm not disavowing them at all. We need them. A contractual relationship is a helpful thing. It is, an, it is a relationship about an equitable exchange of goods and services. We enter into them all the time. You sign an employment contract. It is a contractual arrangement. You promise to offer your labor 40 hours of work a week and the experience and the training you have in exchange for what you deem to be a fair salary. It's an arrangement that you deem to be fair and equitable. You sign up for a wireless or a cellular service. You get the best price you can. You enter into some sort of contractual transaction. 
You pay whatever amount for the monthly cellular service you want. And these relationships continue to exist as long as that arrangement is deemed equitable. But if you find another employer willing to give you a different job or give you a higher salary, you leave that relationship, right? To enter into another equitable contractual relationship. Um, That's just the way these relationships work. And because our society is so dominated by that sort of relationship, we can almost import that into our conception of marriage and think of marriage as a contractual relationship. But it is not. It is very different. It is a covenantal, and it's very design and purpose and scope. A covenantal relationship is not about an equitable exchange of goods and services. It is about a sacrificial commitment dedicated to the good and the flourishing of the other person. God establishes a covenant relationship with us. You know it's not an equitable relationship. God comes bringing to the table far more than we ever bring to the table. He is the one who has created the universe, who has given us life. God comes serving us, sacrificing for us. And in that covenant relationship, God simply asks for our love and loyalty. Not equitable but we come alive in that relationship. So it is this relational covenant. Next part of the vow, to have and to hold, couples will say, which is encompasses sort of the totality of the arrangement. Marriage is never this 50-50. Uh, we all contribute 50-50. No, 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 no. It, 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 it entails the wholeness of your life. So many couples can enter into marriage expecting the 50-50 deal. And so they, almost every aspect of their life, they're measuring, is this fair? Is this balanced? Who's contributing more? Am I contributing more? Well, you bring it on, you know, come on. That just saps a marriage of any strength and hope and life. Instead, You enter into a marriage expecting to offer your all for the best, for the flourishing of the other. You begin asking, how might I serve this other person? How might I bring about their full flourishing and well-being? That's what happens in this marriage. To have and to hold, the couples bring their whole beings in a complete giving of one another to the other. And then there's that line, for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, till death do us part. Marriage includes all seasons of life. And it includes all those seasons with with a long-term permanent sensibility to it. It is the complete abandonment of yourself to the other person for life. It's a legal, public, permanent, exclusive commitment And then the marriage vows end something like this. This is my solemn vow. You make a vow. You make a promise. You give your word, which is in essence giving yourself. And honestly, anyone who does that, who who makes those vows, they hardly know what they're doing at the time. Really. If anyone fully understood what those vows would require, they would run fast away from that altar. No one has a clue when they come to a church and make those vows. 
Because a vow ushers you into a life where you begin to discover the meaning of those vows. And you grow and change according to those vows. And I know some people wonder in our culture, well, why the binding nature of those vows? Um, it sounds so oppressive. And it's a good question for us to ask. And some, one many people have asked. You know, some people wonder, can we just have starter marriages? You know, one that lasts five years, sort of work the kinks out, move on to another person afterwards that are maybe more suitable towards. Um, why the lifelong promises? Isn't keeping promises a sucker's game anyway? You know, sticking with what you get stuck with? No, not a bit of it, actually. Of course, a promise reflects God's covenant promise to us, his continued faithful love to us, a love that endures even with all of our fickle responses and rebellions. And in our relationships, it is remarkable the beauty of a promise, how it helps love to come into full fruition. Without a promise, love, love tends to stall and it withers on the vine often. See, in marriage, a promise provides a safe place for you to fully be yourself, for you to, to come to full flourishing, for you to be your truest self, for you to have a true face. Because here's the deal. When you're dating, and of you who are dating, you know this, you're putting on your best face, aren't you? Yeah, you will know you are. When you go out for a date, you shower, you get all shined up and ready, huh? When you're dating, when you're living without a vow, you are in performance mode. That is what you are in. You're trying to impress. You're putting your best self out there. You're trying to prove yourself daily that you are a fun person. You want to keep the romance and the relationship buzzing. And you keep well hidden all those rough edges, those secrets about you that you'd rather not reveal because otherwise the person might see that and think I don't want any part of that and check out because you can do that in that dating relationship I talk with a lot of couples who are in that space dating relationships or maybe they're cohabiting living together and I often hear them Maybe not specifically, but in some of the tones, some of the language talk about their need to, to prove their value, to somehow continue to entice or impress the other person. They feel like they have to, they're on this constant podium to display that there's chemistry in the relationship, that things are fun and fulfilling. And if not, well, the relationship just might be over. You're in a constant promotional or performance pose you're marketing yourself to your potential part. And it's essentially self-centered, isn't it? Because you're absorbed with yourself, how you look, how you're performing. You're focused in then also on what your partner might be fulfilling you. And that's just a doomed scenario. You're not free, actually. My wife Betty and I had a dinner uh, some time ago with a couple who were living together. And during the course of the dinner, we talked about marriage. We asked, you know, so tell us about your living together. You're not married. Why is that? Are there reasons for it? And they, they, they gave us all the usual ones. But at one point during the dinner, it was interesting. The guy got up. He had to use the facilities. And uh, in a moment of candor, in that moment, the woman immediately shared for us how actually she longs to be married. But 
he doesn't want to get married because he said we might change. She felt stuck. She felt paralyzed. She felt afraid to change at all in the relationship because if she did, she feared he might leave because she didn't know how he would respond to the person she was changing or becoming. And both Betty and I thought, these people just feel paralyzed, feel so stuck. The Bible, in a covenant marriage, in a permanent promise, invites us to enjoy and experience a deeper, more profound love that is made by the permanency of a promise. A promise is a means to freedom, actually. It frees us for pretense, where we can honestly, truly be ourselves. We don't have to hide all those rough edges and rough parts. We can truly be ourselves. We can be known for who we are deep down. The person who promises to love us will get to know us truly, fully, with all our flaws, all those weird idiosyncrasies you know you have. The best and the worst of who you are, and yet still be loved. That is probably the most profound experience we can have. Because that is indeed the experience we get from God, who loves us despite all of our flaws and weaknesses. The vows of marriage are not a burden that binds, but they're a security we can just rest in. And again, we do this because this is what God does for us. Marriage, the whole Christian idea is rooted in God's character, in his nature, in making and keeping promises. We are like God. God is the one who makes promises to us who keeps promises no matter how much we fail or rebel or betray him. Jesus Christ, Scripture says, died for us when? While we were yet sinners. While we had turned, while we are flipping the bird at God. That's when Jesus Christ died. This is love, not this fleeting feeling, but a sustained action of sacrificial service and love. So whenever a spouse wonders, you know, whether he should bail on his marriage because he got stuck with someone who doesn't really know him or love him, but then he remembers a promise he made at a wedding when he married her and he sticks with her in hopeful love, he's like God. Lewis Smedes um, has written really profoundly on the power of a promise. Our library has some of his books. I'd encourage you to check them out. But he notes this. He says, if forgiving is the only remedy for a painful past, promising is the only remedy for your uncertain future. A human promise, he says, is an awesome reality. When a woman makes a promise, she thrusts her hand into an unpredictable circumstance of her tomorrow and creates an enclave of predictable reality. And when a man makes a promise, he creates an island of certainty in a heaving ocean of uncertainty. Can any human act other than the act of forgiving be more divine, he wonders? I don't think so. And so while I hope that those of you who are married are finding hope and instruction and good guidance in this, for all of us, the, the Bible is pointing and teaching to us in marriage of something so vitally true about who God is and how we can relate to God. 
This whole teaching on marriage is centered in on Jesus. Paul takes us back to Jesus, reminding, to Genesis, reminding us of this relationship that God has for us, this instinct for community, how we're created for communion, to love, this need to be loved. It demonstrates how we're made in the image of God and how we are made for God and his love. That longing for love is meant not just for a bride or a groom. It is an echo of that deep need for the love of God. So no matter who you are today, whether you are single, whether you've never been married, whether you wish more than anything else to be married, whether you're in a marriage that is really struggling and hard, where you don't feel loved at all by your spouse, whether you're recovering from a divorce, whether you've lost a spouse and your heart breaks because you miss that spouse, Listen to what God speaks through marriage. The good news is that God calls everyone to marriage with him, to enjoy the spousal love of Jesus Christ. This is the dominant story of scripture. It's a love story. And you and I are the primary actors along with God. It begins with a wedding in the garden. It ends with a wedding in Revelation 19, the wedding of the Lamb. And in the middle of the Song of Songs, it's a soundtrack of the Bible because this is our relationship with God, one in which we enjoy his adoring, promise-filled love for us. This is the Christian story, friends, a story of God who wants to give himself so fully to you, who promises you full flourishing, his utmost, his love, so much so To make sure you know it, he offers his life in his son, Jesus Christ. This is the romance of the Bible. God's covenant love that will not let any of us go. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for what you've shown us today. Again, more and more, the mysteries of this institution we call marriage. All of us have been touched by it somehow, God. Those of us who have not been married, we're surrounded by marriages. We're the product of marriages. We all are touched by it, and we all have hopes and fears about marriage, and we pray, God, that you're going to take this scripture that we've been studying, these words we've been looking at, and that you would mold us with them so, so that people today who are considering marriage would walk wisely into it without any distorted understandings of marriage. So that people who are now sitting in marriages can turn around and not be afraid of the faults that are being revealed in it. Not being afraid of the, the conflicts that might come up, but can begin to reorder the relationship around these, these beautiful covenant realities. God, we pray, transform us, would you? Change us. Make us more like your son. Teach us more about your salvation as we can continue to, to study these words about this greatest of all institutions, marriage. And we thank you most of all that through Jesus Christ, we've been married to you. That we are in your family. Now, Lord, make us more and more like your son. We ask it in his name. Amen.